Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Alyssa Smith, and today we're joined by pediatric otolaryngologist, Dr. Laura Urvidas. Today, we'll be discussing atypical mycobacterium infection. Thanks for being here, Dr. Urvidas. Thanks for having me. So I'd just like to preface this episode by saying that atypical mycobacterium is known to cause four main clinical syndromes in pediatric patients, and this includes lymphadenitis, skin and soft tissue infection, pulmonary disease, and disseminated disease. However, today we'll be discussing lymphadenitis. So Dr. Urvides, first focusing on presentation, how does a pediatric patient with atypical mycobacterium infection typically present? Well, they're usually younger children, uh, often under the age of five, but we've had some children that were older as well. Uh, The patients are usually otherwise normal, healthy kids with normal immune systems. Uh, They usually have lymph nodes present, uh, usually involving the submandibular and parotid areas of the face. As time goes on, these areas will become more erythematous and violaceous in color, which kind of gives you... uh, a hint that this might be what we're dealing with. And as disease progresses, sometimes there will be further skin thinning and sometimes drainage. So thinking about, you know, when a patient first becomes infected, what is the typical timeline and general progression of symptoms that we see? Well, it usually begins with a a single lymph node that the parents may or may not notice. Um, And it's usually the skin changes as necrosis develops is what clues you in that this may be indeed atypical mycobacteria. Uh, Eventually, as we talked about, the skin can break down and they may actually have some drainage from the area. Occasionally, the area will get secondarily infected by pyogenic bacteria, and this can actually cause some discomfort and systemic infections such as fever. And so how common is this? Well, it's relatively uncommon, but appears to be increasing. For example, in certain population-based studies in, for example, Australia, it was about 0.6 to 1.6 per 100,000 children in Australia, and about 3.1 per 100,000 children in Germany. And each of these studies, lymphadenitis was obviously the most common presentation. The number of these infections, like I said, appears to be increasing worldwide, either because we're detecting it more frequently or because there are more cases with an unknown cause. So with that in mind, specifically within the U.S., is this more common in certain geographic areas? It appears to be more common in areas with higher concentrations of pine forests and swamps like the southern U.S. We have seen, however, an increase in Minnesota as well. And so then thinking about the pathogenesis, what are the actual pathogens that cause this infection? Well, like we said, this is atypical mycobacteria. So this is not the cause of typical tuberculosis. Um, These are acid-fast organisms, however, like typical mycobacteria tuberculosis, but they're much more slow-growing. The most common one is mycobacterium avium complex, but there's several other species that can also cause atypical mycobacteria. The species is found primarily in soil and water, and is believed to be passed on via oral contact, which would make sense in small children. So thinking about the properties of you know, these most common atypical infections, what are some properties of these bacteria that make it difficult to detect or to treat? Well, one, kids have lots of adenopathy. It's very uncommon to see a child with at least one lymph node somewhere, um, just because kids have good immune systems and tend to fight things off 
the difference here is these are very slow growing organisms. And so even if you were to take a sample, say with a needle biopsy, um, the organism grows, grows so slow that it would probably be hard to treat it based on that culture. So they also have biofilms. These are called hydrophobic mycolic acid outer layers that form these biofilms. This allows them to survive in harsh environments and makes it harder for antibiotics to actually treat them, which is why we'll learn as we go along here that these more often respond to surgical intervention than oral antibiotics. So you briefly touched on this, but how exactly does infection occur and how are these bacteria getting into our systems? Well, the general consensus, and unfortunately there isn't great data to support any one means of infection, is believed to be through the oral cavity or mucous membranes via ingestion, inhalation um, from water or food or soil, in which kids they think is probably mostly dirt. Moving on to workup. So we see a patient come in, they have a neck mass, we go in to see them. What should be on our differential diagnosis for this neck mass? Well, of course, reactive lymphadenopathy of other causes, such as staph infection, which usually would give you uh, some more systemic symptoms. Probably the main confounder is Bartonella infection, otherwise known as cat storage disease. Unfortunately, you don't necessarily have to be exposed to a cat to say that the, this is what the infection is. Um, and then, of course, the more typical uh, head and neck masses in children, such as branchial cleft cysts, thyroglossal duct cysts, vascular malformations, ranulas, neoplastic lesions, etc. And so with that in mind, what are some important history questions that we should be asking during our evaluation to narrow down this differential? Well, when did it start? When did you notice it? And has it progressed? I think a big one is whether it seems to bother the child. Um, most children with atypical mycobacteria don't have any pain or discomfort or systemic symptoms. One other thing, I think lots of times they've already been treated with antibiotics and really hasn't made any difference. So next, when we're performing our physical exam, what are some key findings that we should be looking for? Well, obviously the involvement of the lymph nodes. And most of the time, the cases are unilateral. They don't necessarily have bilateral adenopathy, which would bode against a diagnosis of atypical mycobacteria. What do we do as far as working these patients up? Is there any role for imaging or other diagnostic tests? I know the general consensus is you don't have to have imaging to diagnose this, but uh, in my experience, I think sometimes it's helpful because what you're feeling in the clinic is often the tip of the iceberg. Um, even though it usually starts in one lymph node, it could certainly spread to others, and I think you get a much better idea with imaging what exactly you're dealing with. They're also healthy, normal kids without immunocompromised. So in immunocompromised children, it would be unusual. So we don't usually need any kind of immune workup. And then is there any lab testing that you typically send? Well, I think it's helpful to get some blood work, just even checking uh, a CBC to look for any kind of left shift which would go against atypical mycobacteria. Certainly you can get Bartonella titers, which would help rule out cat scratch disease. And then in the um, tissue specimen, you certainly want to send it for culture, uh, acid fast staining, as well as PCR testing. When we are trying to nail down the diagnosis of atypical mycobacterium, 
what is the testing that we need in order to obtain that diagnosis? Well, I would say that atypical mycobacteria is a diagnosis of exclusion. I think the skin changes are important. I always get a TB skin test because if it is positive, you can be pretty sure this is atypical mycobacteria. Unfortunately, the vast majority of children do not have a positive TB skin test, even if they do have atypical mycobacteria. And then can you talk about the role of either acid vast uh, testing or culture results that you use, or are those even necessary? Well, if we've got tissue, um, PCR testing is extremely helpful. Cultures can be helpful, but unfortunately take a long time. I think the biggest indicator to me is when they look at it under frozen section and see either caseating or necrotizing granulomas. Again, that pretty much tells you based on your history and your physical exam, combined with that, you can be pretty sure you have atypical mycobacteria infection. And then you mentioned uh, the tuberculin skin testing. If that's positive, is that able to determine atypical mycobacterium versus uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis, or is that a nonspecific test? It's nonspecific, but that being said, to kind of you look where the child is from, the likelihood of regular uh, mycobacteria tuberculosis would be very unlikely in a kid from northern Minnesota, where if you had to have a child tested from a third world country where tuberculosis was a possibility, it's helpful to know the size and the induration of the TB skin test, as well as whether or not they've received a BCG vaccination. There are some people that talk about getting a fine needle aspiration or some sort of drainage or fluid to send uh, for culture or for analysis. Can you talk about the role of potentially fine needle aspiration or incision and drainage and why or why not these would be indicated? Unfortunately, those are the children we see coming from places that aren't too familiar with the disease. The problem with uh, an IND or a needle biopsy is often this causes a fistula formation and they'll have long-term drainage that even if you do nothing will take months and months to go away. So moving on to treatment, can you talk to us about the different treatment approaches that are available for these patients? And generally, we think about observation versus medical therapy versus surgery. Can you just touch on each of those? Certainly. Um, Observation probably is not the best choice and really not the recommended choice, um, mostly because virtually all these kids will eventually fistulize and drain And again, often it will take months and months and months. Uh, One of the articles that I read, I think this was done in Israel, looked at a group of kids where half of them were allowed to uh, be observed and the other half went to surgery. And six months later, about 94% of the kids with surgical intervention were fine, where only about 66% of the kids were drained, that were allowed to just drain over time were resolved. Um, So that kind of goes against just watching it. It's a mess too. I mean, they talked a bit about how, you know, they're always having to change uh, dressings and sometimes the scarf was not so nice when it was was finally done draining. So that really isn't recommended. Um, Surgery can also be performed quite safely if you know your anatomy and know where the marginal nerve is, which is the nerve mostly at risk. 
Um, there have been some cases of children that were treated with antimicrobials. I had a child, for example, who had a nasopharyngeal mass, which when a CT-guided biopsy was done, did indeed have atypical TB, but it wasn't a surgical location. Uh, so this child was treated for six months and actually did have improvement in her symptoms. She had sleep apnea from it. So let's first touch on uh, medical therapy, just because you brought that up with this nasopharyngeal mass. And it seems like patients that are not good surgical candidates, that medical therapy is an option. Can you talk about what the typical antibiotics that are used and the duration? Well, it's unfortunately a long duration, three to six months. There, You usually need an anti-TB type medication, such as uh, rifampin or ethambutol, combined with a uh, macrolide, something like azithromycin or clarithromycin. Um, and I, unfortunately, optimal therapy duration is unknown. The child I mentioned before that was put on medication, uh, nobody's absolutely sure that it was the medication that worked or it was just tincture of time. Um, but I've also had children that have had surgical intervention elsewhere and had a recurrence. Well, when somebody's been in the parotid bed and around the facial nerve and now they're scarring, uh, there's very little uh, want <laughs> to go back into that area as the risk to the nerve is much higher. So some of those children have also been treated uh, with antibiotics and have done relatively well. So with the duration that we have to use these antibiotics in mind, I imagine that there's some risk to some of these antibiotics. Can you touch on some of the risks that you counsel patients on for some of these antibiotics that we use? Well, to be honest, I usually leave that up to the infectious disease people. <laughs> but what I can mention that ethambiotol has a risk of optic neuropathy. There's liver problems with rifampin, lots of abdominal discomfort. Several children I've had have actually had to stop the medication because of the side effects. All right. So now that we've covered medical therapy, let's move on to surgery. You mentioned some of the benefits of surgery, but are there other benefits with surgical excision other than just a higher cure rate? Well, it certainly prevents that problem with fistula development, chronic drainage, need for bandage changing, things like that. Um, it's also almost universally curative. So you don't need to go back in. You don't need to do anything else. And as long as we're careful, it should be without much consequence. I've had a lot of children that had some temporary weakness of their marginal nerve because unfortunately this disease has a tendency to get stuck. I mean, it is an infection. There's a lot of inflammation and they'll often be stuck to the marginal branch. Uh, very rarely have I had to leave a little bit of disease behind and then I do send them back to infectious disease to see if they feel they need to be treated or not. And in most cases, they do not treat them and they do fine. So with a lot of patients that have lymphadenopathy, we generally make a skin incision and then identify the involved lymph node and take that out. However, with the skin involvement with this infection, I can imagine that that's maybe a different situation. Can you touch a little bit on the surgical approach? Yeah, and then we discussed this with parents as well, that because the skin is involved, you actually have to take some of that skin to prevent recurrence of the infection. So not only do you do a typical parotid type incision in most cases and identify at least the marginal branch of the facial nerve, 
you also have to take out ellipse of skin over the area of where the mass and the discoloration is. They have found when they've looked microscopically that if in that skin, there are usually organisms present. And so when you're talking to parents about surgery, you mentioned, you know, the surgical approach. What are some complications of surgery that you talk to them about? Well, certainly the big one is injury to the facial nerve. Um, again, that's usually the marginal because for some reason this has propensity to uh, be along that pathway. The d- disease appears to be along that pathway. Um, also, of course, things like infection, hematoma, uh, and of course, even just temporary nerve weakness, which we do see. All right. So let's move on to follow-up. I can imagine that the follow-up schedule looks pretty different for patients that have surgery versus those that are maybe on antibiotic therapy. So first starting with surgery, what's the typical follow-up look like for these patients? Well, they usually can go back to normal behavior within 10 days to two weeks after surgery. Um, We always tell them that there's going to be a drain in overnight. Um, Keep them in the hospital one night. Uh, But usually... 10 days after surgery, these kids are pretty much back to normal behavior. Um, The way I do it all, the sutures are um, subcutaneous, so there is no sutures to be removed, which is great in an 18-month-old. But again, they usually heal very quickly, great blood supplies, kids are good healers. So uh, after that, unless the parents see something, notice something, I don't necessarily schedule them for, say, three to six-month follow-up because in my experience, there's just no reason for it. Now, I can imagine if a patient is on antibiotic therapy, there might be a little bit closer follow-up. Is that the case? That is true because, again, it doesn't appear to work as well. Often they may still have issues with fistulas and drainage and things like that, not to mention the complications of those medications are sometimes difficult to deal with. So often every couple of months, I will see them as well as the infectious disease specialist. And how long do you generally give patients on antibiotic therapy to see whether or not they're going to have progression of their symptoms or even if they just have no response um, to when you would start to consider surgical therapy? Well, in my mind, most of the kids that are receiving medical therapy are not great surgical candidates in the first place. Again, somebody who's had previous partial resection and in where the facial nerve was exposed, or like I talked about before, the young lady who had nasopharyngeal disease. In those situations, I'm not sure when you would ever talk about surgery, and I would think you would just have to continue with observation versus continued treatment. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Urvitas, for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Because children have lymphadenitis frequently, until you start getting skin changes or concerns for bilaceous or drainage, I'm not sure I would chase after an atypical mycobacteria infection because it is relatively rare. In summary, patients that present with atypical mycobacterium lymphadenitis are usually under five years of age and immunocompetent. They will present with cervicofacial lymphadenopathy, most commonly involving the submandibular area and less frequently the preauricular area. Classically, the overlying skin will become thin and violaceous as disease progresses and patients can develop a draining sinus tract. The vast majority of atypical mycobacterium lymphadenitis is caused by mycobacterium avium complex. A presumptive diagnosis can be made clinically and later confirmed with positive culture or PCR of fistula drainage or tissue. The treatment approach that provides the highest rate of cure is surgical excision. 
Treatment with antibiotics can be used if the patient is not a surgical candidate. Although most children will have resolution of disease without treatment if given enough time, many children with untreated disease will develop sinus tracts and prolonged drainage, and therefore observation is not recommended. I'll now move on to the question portion of this podcast. As a reminder, I will ask a question, pause for a few seconds, and then give the answer. The first question is, what is the typical route of infection for atypical mycobacterium lymphadenitis? Infection occurs by ingestion, inhalation, or inoculation of mycobacterium bacilli from the environment, such as in water, soil, or food. In general, pulmonary infection occurs as a result of inhalation, but lymphadenitis occurs generally as a result of ingestion and penetration of the oropharyngeal mucosa. The second question is, what is the antibiotic regimen used to treat atypical mycobacterium, and what are some side effects of this regimen? The antibiotic regimen that is used to treat atypical mycobacterium includes a macrolide, such as azithromycin or clarithromycin, plus rifampin or ethambutol. The optimal duration of therapy is unknown, but patients are typically treated until their symptoms resolve, which is usually three to six months. The risks of these antibiotics include optic neuropathy with ethambutol, liver problems with rifampin, and abdominal discomfort, which can occur with the macrolides or rifampin. The final question is what is typically seen on histopathology of specimens infected by atypical mycobacterium? As we commonly see with tuberculosis infections as well, we'll see caseating granulomas, necrotizing granulomas, granulomatous and pyogenic inflammation, mononuclear inflammation, multinucleated giant cells, and microabscesses. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.